0: Could you open up the Ephesians chapter 5, please? This is our final message on generous God, generous church. Studying for this last message, I'll be honest with you, it's been a personal soul search. This is a tough message, because what I'm about to say is not easy, because I'll tell you, um, my job is to first practice what I preach, and so... What I'm going to preach about today, if I take it serious, it first must be applied to me. All throughout the sermon series, I've started with this little this little slide that said, There's a method to my madness. Um I I want to compel your hearts more than I want to raise money, but it, when it comes to your hearts, money's always involved. That's just the way it is. Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So really my intent with the way that I've structured these messages is to ask the question, so where's your treasure? Because where treasure is, that's where your heart ultimately is. Week one, we dealt with the question, is God angry with me if I don't give? And the answer was no, of course not. God needs nothing. He doesn't need anything. And if he wants to do something, he will do it. This whole stewardship campaign is really more about my faith than it is raising money for God. He doesn't need it, but this is more about me. Week two, we answered the question, is it better to give than receive? How could giving be better than receiving? That's what every person wonders, because we, we like things, we like receiving. God says the reason why giving is better is because it's the way we've been designed. When we give, we are satisfied. Also, giving shows us who we worship, and giving is one of the surest signs that I'm his child. Last week, we asked the question, is it possible to honestly enjoy giving? Is it possible? Yes, because grace compels us. Grace compels us. What we were first generously given we give in response to that, and knowing that generosity of God keeps flowing to those who are generous, just does. so this last week, um, it's going to be tough. I have an honest confession to make. I think I'm like many of you. Giving hurts. I don't like it. And so the question for this week is this: Isn't giving supposed to be easy? Isn't it supposed to be easy, so we have these? No, it's really not. And we're going to see why. Shouldn't giving be like a cherry on top of my hot fudge sundae where when my daughter says, Dad, can I have the cherry? Sure, honey. But don't touch my ice cream or hot fudge. We want giving to be easy, you know, something that's on the top, something that doesn't matter too much. But giving actually is the guts of the matter of my faith. And from all my research, giving is not supposed to be hot fudge Sunday easy. It's designed to take something of us. It's called personal sacrifice. And that's what Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2 is all about. We're going to just read through it and we're going to work our way through this verse. Because this is one of those verses that I think is like nestled. It's often nestled in between huge parts of scripture we look at, but we often fly by this verse, but this is a verse that is uh, it's a gem. You want to talk about a verse that says it all, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Let me read it. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I'll read that again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a famous saying, it goes like this. I'm sure you've heard it. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. I think Paul would say it like this. Imitation is the truest form of Christianity. Imitation is the truest form of Christianity. In this passage, Paul is saying, if you are God's child, imitate God. Follow Him. Do what He does. Learn to walk like Him. That's what verse 2 says. And walking in love. 1 John 2.6 is very clear on this point. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. So go to the next slide. So we're talking about imitation. And 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever claims to live in him must, it's an imperative, walk as Jesus did. One of the easiest things in the world to do, I would say probably the, one of the most prominent things in America, easiest things to do, is to say verbally, I'm a Christian. There are so many Christians in America So, to a degree, one of the easiest, some people say, well, it's hard to be a Christian in our day and age. No, it's easy to say I'm a Christian. You know what is really hard to do? Live like Christ. That's what Christian means. Christian means I'm a little Christ. That's what it means. In the verse here, it says, therefore be imitators of God. That's the ESV. NIV also uses the word be. And it's in, if you break it down when you study, it's in what's called a present-middle imperative tense. What that means, it's in the present. Middle means it's continuing imperative, and it's something we must do. We must do it continually. What must we do continually? Imitate. One writer says this verb, be, is in its strictest sense, means to join in the process of becoming. How do we do this? Through constant perseverance and imitation. The follower will be transformed into the likeness of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, I love how 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He says, as we behold His glory, we are changed from glory to glory. We call that transformation, where we actually are becoming a different person. Personally speaking, transformation is hard. Because it's cooperative. I have to participate. I have to do something. And, and I'd even say it like this. We all understand um, transformation on almost every other level, but somehow it drops off in Christianity. When it comes to physical transformation, you need to exert, sweat, push the limits of your muscles to be trimmer, better shape, lose weight. It takes your effort. We all understand when it comes to intellectual transformation, you need to read, you need to study, you need to memorize, you need to take tests. We, well, not everybody's a musician, but Rhonda probably could attest to this. When it comes to musical transformation, practice makes what, Rhonda? Perfect. You need to do something. But somehow, when it comes to Christ-likeness, we have learned that it happens by osmosis. I just, I just... It just happens. No, it's participation by walking as Christ walked. That's what it says right here. So what does Christ do? How does he walk? That's the next logical question. What did he do? What did Jesus do that I need to do? So I'm just working down the question. It says here in verse 2, walk in love, or in ENIV, live a life of love. The love Paul is describing here is agape love, a highest form of love, self-sacrificing love. 1 John 3:16, listen to this. 1 John 3:16, by this we know love. And this is the type of love Paul's talking about. John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So this type of love that we are to walk in is self-sacrificing love. In simplest terms, the logic of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, if you are a Christian, you will imitate Christ by sacrificially loving others. So then that leads to the next question. I am told you I'm just walking through this verse. What does it mean to sacrifice? And this is where it gets What I would say, hard. Because I want you to think about this word as you think about yourself. A sacrifice has two components. Just two components. Number one, it's voluntary. It's a voluntary act. Look at what it says in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us, and he gave himself up. That phrase, he gave himself up, is a voluntary action. Sort of like in Isaiah 6. God is looking for somebody to go spread the word to the world. Will anybody go? Who can I send? And Isaiah, the prophet, says, Here I am, send me. When God looked on the earth, he saw the sin. Is there anybody that can remedy sin? The son said, Father, here I am. Send me. It's voluntary. He gave himself up. He wasn't compelled. That's the basis of sacrifice. It needs to be a person's free choice without compulsion. That's why I'd say, God's not mad at you. It's it's an issue of, do you want to? Psalm 51, David's talking about sacrifice. He says, you do not simply delight in sacrifices, like just routine, religious sacrifices. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God, here's what they are. This is what God wants a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That means sensitivity, somebody who knows they are broken before God and they are okay with it, contrite. And then David says. A heart like that, O God, you will not despise. In other words, the sacrifice God's accept is not something I must do. It's something I want to do. Because I love him. The second thing about sacrifice is that it is costly. That's what the word means. The whole point of sacrifice, and this is all through the Old Testament, it leads up to the New Testament, and it continues on through Paul's writing, the whole idea of sacrifice is simple. I am killing something that is dear to me to worship God. Time and time again, God wanted his people to give sacrifices that were the best of the flock, unblemished, fat calf. Once you go to the book of Malachi, I want to show you something that, to me, to me, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and personally, this may be one of the most convicting passages in all of Scripture. It's Malachi chapter 1. So God is um, coming to his people, and he's sort of upset with his people. Because they have vowed, voluntarily, a vow is a voluntary verbal commitment before God. They have vowed to give sacrifices to God, but they only give their sick and their diseased animals. I mean, what kind of a, how sacrificial is it giving an animal that's going to die already? It's like saying, God, I love you this much, a skinny cow and a sick goat. That's how much I love you, God. But it's a it's a sacrifice. I told you I'd do it, but I love you this much. You know that you know that animal that's in the back of the pen that's diseased? I'll give him that one. And so look at what God says in Malachi 1:14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And so Vowing is you already told God you'll do it. That's the voluntary part. But curse be the cheat who has a male, and yet he sacrifices to the Lord the rotten, the blemished animal. And then he says, here's the, here's the reason why cursed is the cheat, is because I'm a great king. I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared among the nations. It's a very simple principle. Worship means worth. Now compare this kind of sacrifice for a second. We have to compare this kind of sacrifice, and this takes this takes some real meditation. Compare this sacrifice with the one that Jesus gave. Scholars like to use this Roman phrase or Latin phrase, Moore's crucis It's hard to even say, but it means the most vile death of the cross. The cross was vile. When talking about the cost Jesus paid, one writer says crucifixion was regarded in the Greek-speaking world and particularly in a Roman-occupied Palestine as utterly detestable, shameful, offensive, humiliating. It was a punishment that was fit only for beasts. Jesus not only died an unspeakably cruel death, he underwent the most contemptible abasement that could be imagined. So repugnant was the gruesome reality that a natural tendency still prevails to blunt, remove, or domesticate the cross's scandalous impact. We are so shocked by how much it cost Christ, we, we are, we kinda, we, we've glossed over the cross and made it something to wear on a neck and a chain that makes you cry. It's no, it's dreadful. cost for Christ was unimaginable. So why did he go through it? Paul in Ephesians says, in Ephesians 5.2, it's because he loved God and he loved us. Look, Go back to Ephesians 5.2. It gives you the reason why he did it. So it says, therefore be imitators of God, that's 5.1, as beloved children, and walk in love, which we've talked about, as Christ loved us, and gave himself up. For who? Us. a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to who? God. So this was both for you and for God. It was for both of us. Here's the the best way. I once heard this phrase, and I completely, this is the most challenging part for me. This, This is what really hit me. The simple idea of sacrifice is this. Here it is. What means the most to you, you pay the most for. What means the most to you you pay the most for the cross shows us what mattered the most to Christ his father's glory and our salvation that's why it says in hebrews 11:2 for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame meaning the joy that was set before him is that he knew the cross was it was it was worth the payment because he's going to give glory to his father and we you and me are going to be in heaven for all eternity with him it's worth it What matters most what means the most you'll pay the most for that's the whole idea of sacrifice sacrifice reveals worth So for Jesus what mattered most to him was you and me not not the wearing of a crown Not owning all the gold and all the cattle on a thousand hills. That didn't matter most to him. Not being popular. That didn't matter most to him. If you think being popular so people could say his name is, you know, like while he'd walk through the streets and they'd chant his name, why was he willing to die naked and alone with nothing really to give? Because he wanted you and his Father's glory. What means the most to you, you pay the most for. And and then what I would say the logical consequences is this. You can say it like this. And what you pay the most for, ultimately, is what you worship. Do I love, this was a question I had this week, do I love God and Jesus enough to sacrifice What does my checkbook tell me about what matters most to me? And really, to go back to our original statement at the very beginning, am I a follower in speech only, or do I follow Jesus by imitation, with imitation being sacrificial love? It's a very difficult question. And so, what you pay for the most is what you worship. And so, last week we talked about tithing. So let's save 100%. Remember, we said tithing is only 10%. So 90% God gives for you to live. That's, to me, relatively generous. The government doesn't even want to do that to you. you know. So God lets you live off of 90%. The question about sacrifice is the question with this 10%. What does how you spend that 10% show about your devotion to God? Or to what means the most to you? What you spend the remainder 10% on is what really means the most to you. Yeah, and I know what you're saying. You're making me feel guilty. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But I am saying God says sacrifice. Would you say you love God and others by what you give? The, it's really funny. The past two months, Many of you know I've got a son who's very good at football. He is. He's a good football player. In the last two months, we've been looking at different colleges. And so you go to colleges that want to recruit your son. They sit you down. And as a parent, they, they tell you three things. The first thing they tell you is what's going to be required of your student. And you've got to get up early. You're going to be working late. You're going to be working all summer. You're going to be, football is a job. It's a you work hard as if, and and the coaches talk about it as if you better just, if you want to be a part of this team, you better just get used to it now. You know, and it's funny because we're sitting in the crowd going, yeah, I want that for my son. I want him to work hard. It's really weird. Because when we talk about money here, we're like, what? Don't ask people to commit. And And then they send the students out, and then they tell you the cost of the institutions. You know, college costs a lot of money. And I want to say, do you know how much money I've already spent on them playing sports for all these years? Boy, do we worship sports. Wow. What you are willing to pay the most for means the most to you. Well, I was thinking through that. Let's say, as I'm saying this, you're listening But you don't care about sacrificing because you do have plans already for yourself. It was interesting on Bill's thing. What if you're like Bill and said, I need the money more than he does. But let's say you you take that money and you give it to yourself so you can really help your, your plans and your dreams come true. And let's say all of your plans and your dreams come true. Let's say they come true. Because you decide not to sacrifice for God and others. What if your kid does become famous? What if you gain riches? What if you invest it in a um, portfolio that just makes a ton of money for you? Let's say you're able to buy a vacation home on the lake. What if you were to gain the whole world? What then? Will you really be satisfied completely? Completely? Will you finally be happy? Will you say it was all worth it? Because you know what Jesus says about those who gain the whole world? He says something about losing your soul. I think he said something like that. I'm, I'm not sure what that means. but It doesn't sound good. But we're too smart to fall for that scam of heaven. You know, it's a scam. It's a scam. Because you you've never been to heaven. Have you ever been to heaven You've never been there, so it's a scam trying to get your money. There's eternity and rewards from God. Come on, aren't we smarter than that? Watch Bill Maher, he's smarter than that. Isn't this world all that there and is? Isn't that it? I mean, so why give money to something you can't see? Our end is six feet of dirt, that's it, so live it up all you can. Just six feet of dirt, that's our end just buried, and we're going to be worm food, so why sacrifice? Or maybe, just maybe, I'm going to see my dad again. Maybe, just maybe, just maybe, I will have to look into the face of God who made me wonderfully in my mother's womb. Maybe, just maybe, there are books that are opened, and it has words and works and intentions. Maybe there is a judge going to read those books, maybe. And maybe, just maybe, again, I'm just just maybe, hell is hot. So if I'm supposed to imitate Jesus, does that mean I have to die on a cross? And what kind of sacrifice am I to offer? I just want some specifics. Give me some specifics. I have three verses in the New Testament tell us specifically what sacrifice is. And I want to turn to these three verses because they talk about a sacrifice that is a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. Because that's what Jesus' sacrifice was. The first is Hebrews 13, 16. These verses are really pretty, pretty clear-cut. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. So you have fifteen talks about a praise as a sacrifice. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, which we do on Sundays, and then it, you know, and that's, it smells good to God, and then. Um, Look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So to do good and to share what you have. At the time this was written, Christians would share their homes. People were being persecuted. They would share their food, their time, and they'd share their money. And it hasn't really changed. But I would say even more importantly, we have our currency is money. It just is, because we're pretty isolated people, and we're, we're. I would say that's how you. That's how you share what you have. Second verse, I want you goes back to Ephesians five again, because it's. Um, the imagery is related to five one and two and verse twenty five, Ephesians five twenty five. And it sort of goes back to 5.2 where it talks about Christ's sacrificial love. But he's now going to relate it in an analogy, analogous way to marriage. And I want you to think through this because I think this will make more sense of what sacrifice looks like. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So gave himself that same idea of sacrificial offering, voluntary. So the analogy is this, a husband is the sacrifice for his wife. If a husband loves his wife, I mean really loves his wife, he will often spend all he has just to make her happy. I know of men that out of love have nothing really to show for themselves in order to clothe his wife, keep his wife happy, keep his his dog happy, his kids' clothes and happy. They don't really have anything because they've given it all to care for their family. Sacrificing. I've also known husbands who tell their wives, if you want something, you better get a job and keep your own account of money because this money's mine. Is that love? Is that love? Who's the loving husband? The one that says, honey, whatever's mine's yours, take it. And then there's one more, and this goes right in line with what Bill just said. And this is an amazing verse. Philippians chapter 4, 17 and 18. This is a beautiful way to end this. Philippians four, seventeen to 18. Paul is saying, not that I seek a gift. I'm not not writing you because I'm trying to, you know, really just make money off you. Not that I'm seeking a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So he's saying, when you actually, when you give me a gift, it's actually for your sake. What does that mean? Well, verse 17, 18. I have received full payment, and more I am well supplied. Having received from... Epaphroditus, the gifts you've sent. So you receive money and gifts from the church in Philippi. And he said, you've taken care of me, but that gift you gave me, look how he describes it. It's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. So what you give down here will be deposited into your account up there. That's what verse seventeen is. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. So the idea is if you give to Paul down here, it's going to be stored up for you up there. Jesus says it like this in Matthew six nineteen to twenty. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know something? Jesus, if you be honest with it, he was a terrible financial advisor. He really was. I mean, all he had left was his robe when he died. So really you could say it like this. When you give, you aren't really building a church as much as you're building a home in heaven, truthfully. I want to finish our giving campaign with a quote I found this week. And I, I love this quote. I put it on Facebook this week, but I just want to share it because I want you to think hard on it. And this is the essence of Christ's gift. Giving may not be easy, but it is how we tell God we love him. And here's the, here's the statement. The cross was an awful scene of horror. But in love so measureless, so reckless of cost for those who are naturally unworthy of it. And that statement comes from Romans 5. God didn't love us when we were good. He loved us when we were his enemies. We weren't worthy of it, and he still gave. And because of that, there was an action, which is the cross, that filled heaven with fragrance. Sacrifice goes up to the nostrils of God and he's pleased. The reason why this is so hard for me this week is to say, God, are you pleased with me? Do you know that I love you?